Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. Today's sermon is entitled, Is Jesus Enough? For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Philippians chapter 3. Here's our big idea for today. It's this. uh, It's a little longer, so I'm going to give you time to write it down. And I even made sure after last week not having an outline for you, I printed outlines in my home office last night for you um, to make sure we had something for you to follow along. So here's, here's the big idea. Jesus plus something equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus something equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I'll explain this a little more in a few minutes, but as you write that down, here's a brief background on the book of Philippians. You might remember me mentioning at the beginning of our Colossians series that Paul wrote four letters while he was in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel. His first imprisonment took place between 60 and 62 AD. The four letters that he wrote were Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, and Philippians. The city of Philippi, where this church is located, that Paul's writing to, is um, a church located in a Roman colony, strategically located on what's called the Ignatian Way. It was a superhighway that connected the east to the west back in the first century. Thus, uh, Philippi saw a lot of commerce. And one of the things that was common for churches or or communities, excuse me, that were on this Ignatian Way superhighway was if they got a lot of commerce, they often were affluent cities. Uh, I think Thessalonica is another example of a city that uh, was affluent, had a lot of wealth. Acts chapter 16 tells us that Paul uh, uh, planted the church in Philippi after leading some key people to faith in Christ. We're also told in Acts chapter 16 that uh, Philippi was a leading city in the district of Macedonia, meaning it was a major city. It, it was a, a city that was, uh, had a huge impact and attracted people from around its region. And so uh, it might be something like Los Angeles back in the day or Chicago where there were a lot of other smaller suburbs, but, but it was a major hub, okay? So... Paul wrote to this church in Philippi to, um, he wanted to help the church understand, first of all, what it meant to know Christ and the joy that they could have, and he also wanted to protect them from false teachers that were invading this church as well. Um, You've heard me mention already in the sermon series that I've done the last couple of years that just about every New Testament letter has a reference or teaching refuting false teachers because false teachers were trying to get into just about every New Testament church. And so Paul is writing this church to encourage them, to equip them. He wants to thank them for their generous financial support because they supported him financially while he was ministering abroad. Uh, Because this church was planted in an affluent city, it probably had members that were affluent and had plenty of financial resources. Uh, It was also, as I said, being invaded by false teachers. 
And so I think what Paul is trying to tackle here in chapter 3 is this. An abundance of resources combined with false teaching, I think was causing some of the Philippians to think they needed to earn their salvation or could earn their salvation or could please God somehow in their own strength. And so with that, the big idea, Jesus plus something equals nothing, but Jesus plus nothing equals everything, Paul answers two questions at least here. Is Jesus enough to save you for eternity? And the next question he answers in the verses we're going to look at, is Jesus enough to have a fulfilling life? Can you have a meaningful, fulfilling life with faith in Christ alone? And so with that, if you would look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, as I read, Paul says, finally, my brothers, I kind of chuckle at that, by the way, because he's like a preacher. You think he's coming in for a landing, but there's like a whole nother chapter after this. And so finally, he's really not closing the letter, you know? He's got more to say. But finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for those dogs. Look out for those evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh." Here's the first uh, thing that Paul tells us and tells the believers in Philippi this morning, and that is that repentance and faith in Christ alone are sufficient for salvation. Repentance and faith in Christ alone are sufficient for salvation. Now, he obviously does not have kind words to say about a certain people group. He calls them dogs, mutilators of the flesh. Um, those that are evildoers. He's referring to a group called Jude, the Judaizers. Uh, the Judaizers were a group of rival false teachers who, although they believed that Jesus died and rose again for their sins, they did not believe that that was sufficient for salvation. The Judaizers were Jewish Christians. They, they were saved out of the Jewish faith, grew up learning the Old Testament law and all the rituals from the Old Testament, and that they had to keep those rules in order to maintain favor with God, but they were having a hard time letting go of all those rules and the performance that was ingrained in them so much to receive Christ by faith and to trust in Him alone for salvation. And so what they were going around teaching is that, yeah, you need Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised. And you also have to fulfill some other things from the Old Testament too. I mean, we just can't throw out the entire Old Testament here. Let's just not go bonkers, man. And so, and so they were most passionate about making sure circumcision happened, so they basically were teaching, you need Jesus plus circumcision. Now, one of the questions that these believers were struggling with as a result of the Judaizers invading the church is, well, man, is, is Jesus enough for my salvation? Hey, hey, hey Paul, are, are we saved? Because you said we were saved if we just trusted Christ and repented of our sins. And so Paul answers the question in verse 3. He says, look at your text with me, we are the real circumcision. He's referring to a circumcision of the heart, a cut heart, cut by the Spirit and by the Word, transformed. We worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus 
and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul's answer to the question, is Jesus all that I need for salvation, is simply put, yes, that's all you need. Now, there are a lot of people talking about faith in God these days and talking about Jesus. Even Jesus is popular these days. But I want to clarify what it means when I say that Jesus is sufficient for salvation. Because, sadly, I have met many people over the years that have attended church, they know the Christmas story, they know the Easter story, yet they still don't get or they're not able to connect what it means to be saved through faith in Christ. And so the message of the gospel is simply this. All of mankind are born sinners, including myself. Our sin separates us from God. We've received the death penalty from the point of birth as a result of our sin. Jesus Christ took the punishment for our sin upon himself by dying on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. His death satisfied the judgment of a holy God who required perfection in exchange for eternal life. Jesus then resurrected himself three days later, conquering the grave and death, and then proclaimed his message during his ministry. Well, he did that before he died, excuse me. But uh, he, he taught, and then the apostles proclaimed even further after he died that anyone who agrees with God that they're a sinner, and needs to be saved from the consequences of their sin. Anyone who repents of their sin and forsakes it to follow Christ, who believes that Christ died to pay the penalty for their sin and was resurrected, and follows him as Savior and Lord, those people will be saved, promised eternal life, forgiven, and have peace with him and start a new relationship with him. So, But it's important. You have to agree with God that you're a sinner. You have to repent of the sin that he died to save you from, meaning you leave it and say, I'm going to follow you, Lord, with all my heart, the best of my ability. You have to believe that he died and was resurrected, and you have to follow him as Savior and Lord. Now, this sounds simple, but it gets tricky because the Scriptures tell us and you've heard me reference this numerous times in the last year, the scriptures tell us that there are many people, and there are always more people who think they're saved but aren't. There are always more that profess Christ than those that have actually been converted to Christ. And so this is why I think Paul then lists evidences of a genuine conversion of someone who's been born again. Uh, letter A on your outline is this. He says in verse 3, uh, true believers, we who have been circumcised in the heart, we give Jesus authentic worship and service. We give Jesus authentic worship. So, so in other words, I think he said, some translations render this uh, as worship, while others worship it as, uh, excuse me, I think the NIV renders it as serve. Either is appropriate here, but the point that he's making is that those who have been genuinely born again have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And because they have the Holy Spirit living within them, they long to, they look forward to, they love to worship the Lord. They don't have to be forced to go to church. They don't, they, and nor do they have to be told to make worship a priority in their schedule because they love the Lord. They've been born again. The Spirit in them wants to worship and glorify the Lord. So the next 
sign of somebody that's been born again, or the next thing that true believers do, according to Paul here in verse 3, is letter B, they give Jesus glory for everything. He says, we glory in Christ Jesus. A true maturing believer doesn't say things like, I'm so proud of myself. Or, hey, look at what I did. That's just like, that makes the Lord cringe. And it's because a maturing believer understands that anything they do that's good or praiseworthy was made possible by Jesus. They, they understand John 15, 5, where Jesus said to the disciples, Apart from me, you can do nothing. The breath in your lungs, the brain on your shoulders, the, the heart in your chest, it's all because of me. If you have talent, it's because I gave it to you. If, if, if you get up in the morning, it's because I allowed you. So thus, if a, a maturing believer does anything praiseworthy, they know it's because Jesus helped them and he deserves all the glory for it. Next, true believers also let her see. They place no confidence in human credentials. They place no confidence in human credentials. Paul says they put no confidence in the flesh. This is an interesting turn of phrase that Paul uses here, and he only uses it here in the New Testament. I don't think he uses it in any other place. I first learned this verse, Philippians 3.3, 3, uh, when I was in uh, college, I attended a summer camp for Christian athletes. And at the camp, they taught us to memorize and pray this verse while on the playing field. And they taught us to use the verse as a reminder to not rely on our athletic abilities to compete, but instead to turn competition into an opportunity to worship the Lord. And so they even drove this point home by putting us at the camp through a, a gauntlet of athletic events designed to exhaust us. It was, like, it was like Navy SEAL training, where they put us through some intense uh, competitions in a very short period of time, deprived us of sleep and food to get us to the point where we couldn't rely on our athletic ability, where we had to pray. And they, they did it on purpose. Um, so that we would pray, and they kept telling us, stop putting confidence in the flesh. Are you praying? We know you're tired. Stop complaining about being tired and start praying. You know, and they, it was just, it was, it was a great experience, and obviously one I never forgot. But, although I think that's a good application of the verse, place no confidence in the flesh, it actually means a lot more than that. To put confidence in the flesh, here's a definition for you that I've been working on for a few years. You might want to jot it down. It, it is the prideful thinking that we can accomplish spiritual objectives without the Lord's help. Confidence in the flesh here in Philippians 3 is the prideful thinking that we can accomplish spiritual objectives without the Lord's help. Unbelievers place confidence in the flesh when they errantly think they can be good enough to get into heaven. Whatever good enough looks like. Believers put confidence in the flesh when they do things like trying to grow in holiness apart from walking with the Lord. 
or when they try to accomplish things for the Lord instead of doing things with the Lord. So, true believers, according to Paul, they give authentic worship and service to Jesus because they want to. Uh, they give Jesus glory for everything that they accomplish. It's praiseworthy. And they place no confidence in human credentials. Let's look back at the text in verse 4. Paul then says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Here's number two in your outline. The second thing that Paul tells us is that human accomplishment and ability are insufficient for salvation. Human accomplishment and ability are insufficient for salvation. Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, you might want to underline this in your Bible. I have it uh, underlined in mine because he uses this phrase three times in two verses. And, and he's, he's making the argument that, you know, if anybody could have confidence in the flesh, I could, but I don't. I got the resume to do it. In fact, let me explain. Because I know today, 21st century America, some of the things that he's listing here don't make sense to us. So here's what it meant back then in the first century to this audience that he's writing to. When he says, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he's referencing his family bloodline. This meant that he came from one of the holiest, most respected families in the history of Israel. And Paul could trace his lineage all the way back to Abraham. And many people couldn't do that, but it was a big deal if you could. Because Abraham was seen as the father of Israel and the father of their faith. So Paul was saying, I came from that family. My descendants brought about the faith that you Judaizers are so proud of. And this was big because Judaizers were very proud of their family history, and they loved to boast about it. Next, Paul says, I was a Pharisee. What he's referring to is his education, his religious education. He spent years studying under one of the greatest rabbis that ever lived back then, a man named Gamaliel. And Paul reached the pinnacle of his religious education by earning the title and status of Pharisee. So he knew the Old Testament law inside and out and could probably quote books of it at a time from memory. Then Paul says he was a persecutor of the church, so he was an activist. I'm sure you might remember from the book of Acts, the first half of Acts, Paul used to be named Saul. He violently opposed the gospel and incarcerated and killed Christians. So in other words, what Paul is saying here is that on the outside, before he knew Christ, he looked like a tremendous success story. He looked like he had it all together. 
He had the spiritual resume that anybody would crave to have. But on the inside, Paul's heart was hard towards God and dirty with the stains of sin. As one of the most religious people on the planet at the time, even Paul came to realize that he needed a relationship with Jesus Christ to save him. That he could not save himself. One of the many reasons I think Paul condemns putting confidence in the flesh is that putting confidence in the flesh puts the spotlight on what we can do for Jesus instead of what Jesus has already done for us. You see, the first produces ordinary results for which we get glory, and the second produces extraordinary results for which Jesus gets glory. Putting confidence in the flesh and our own accomplishments or abilities instead of the Lord, taking credit for those things that we don't deserve credit for, well, it's not pleasing to the Lord. It reminds me of a fable I once heard about a woodpecker who uh, was pecking on a tree, and in the middle of his pecking, a bolt of lightning hit the tree, split it down the middle, and caused it to fall over in the forest. The woodpecker stepped back, surveyed the situation, and flew away. Later that day, he returned with nine of his friends, landed on the tree, and he said, there it is, gentlemen, right there. That's what I did. (laughs) That's what we do sometimes. We take credit for things that the Lord did through us, not knowing that it was him that enabled us to do it. Human accomplishment and ability are insufficient for salvation. Thus, Jesus plus something equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So the answer to this problem with the flesh is found in verses 8 through 11. Look back at your Bibles with me. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings and become like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here's the third point on your outline. A deepening relationship with Christ is the only thing worth living for. And I would add, it's the only thing worth dying for. You see, another question that these Philippian believers were struggling with is, Is Jesus enough for me to have a fulfilling life? And I think the influence in this church may have tempted them to be worldly, so they had maybe competing loves in their heart. Maybe maybe they loved Jesus and stuff. Or maybe it was Jesus and money, and, and, and things that money could get them. Still, others may have... Jewish traditions competing with their love for for Jesus. Legalism. 
If I just do enough and I follow the rules and I'm moral enough, then I will qualify by myself for heaven and I can then take credit for it. Which, by the way, would not make heaven heaven because then there'd be a bunch of people bragging for eternity about why they got there. I've always, I've always, I mean, that's why I love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It is, it is not by works, it is a gift from God received by grace through faith. Because heaven would be hell if we had to earn our way to get there. And then we'd all be proud for eternity about why we got there. So Paul says, I count everything as loss. Notice the banking terms he's using. Count in verse 7. Count in verse 8. What's he saying here? Well, he's saying because of the things in this world and the religiosity that he he attained, he he reached the, the pinnacle of worldly fame, success, and respect, and he was the best at his religion, and it left him dissatisfied. Like, yeah, is this it? Yeah, this wasn't worth it. And because Jesus can provide and do things for him that he couldn't do for himself, he realized in his conversion and as he grew in his walk with the Lord, man, my life before Christ, it's worthless. It was a waste. It's nothing. In fact, as though he wasn't clear enough, he goes to a whole new level and he says, I count them as rubbish. This is interesting. Uh, I remember when I was in college... Uh, going through a, a college Bible study with Camp Crusade for Christ, and we studied this passage, and I had it explained to me what rubbish meant. I mean, my, me and my friends were just appalled because it was, it's, it's a curse word in the Greek. It, it's, we were like, whoa, he, he, he says that? It, basically, the word is scubula. It means dog dung or garbage. Uh, depending on your Bible translation, you might see either of those words or other examples, uh, synonyms for it. But a contemporary translation I like to use is poo. He's saying all that stuff before I knew Christ, all my accomplishments, all the respect and education, poo, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. It's that stuff that you step in when you're mowing your yard. And some neighbor let their big gigantic dog do his business in your yard and didn't bring a poo bag. And you go, oh man, that's what Paul says. He's trying to come up with a graphic example of the worst of the worst substance that's not even worthy of animals to eat or have. That's how he saw what he accomplished in the world. So I think Paul uses this word scubula, dog dung, trash, rubbish, because he's trying to use shock value to help us understand that compared to having Christ, everything else he accomplished was poo to him. It's that emoji that people like to use when they're mad, you know? You know what I'm talking about if you text and you have an iPhone. And I think he's saying this because... Those things that he lists in the first few verses about his family bloodline and his education and all his resume, that stuff's temporal. It won't last for eternity. It meant nothing in eternity. 
Paul already knew what a mentor of mine told me when I was a new believer. Only three things will last forever. God, his word, and the souls of men. And so when Paul got saved, he rearranged his life to fall in place with those priorities. The Lord, the word, and the souls of men. That's what I'm living for. And by the way, you don't have to go into full-time ministry to do that. You can have those priorities working in the marketplace. And so because Paul had reordered his life in this way, I think we should too. And the apostles' mindset was, hey, look, because Jesus gave all himself for me, the least I can do is give all myself to him. Now, in case you're wondering... Why should I seek to know Jesus more intimately? I mean, I just kind of want the salvation part. You know, do I have to do the work of getting to know him? Well, Paul answers that in verses 8, 9, and 10. He says, he says by pursuing Christ and counting all that other stuff before his conversion is rubbish and, and, and growing in a deeper, more intimate relationship with Christ, he gained, verse 8, the knowledge of Christ. He says, I just, I... I found joy in knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It, mean, it means, among other things, he gained a better understanding of who God is and how God works. Who, who wouldn't want that? Then, then he says he, he gained the righteousness of Christ. He said, I'm not having a righteousness of my own, but that's that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God. Paul, Paul is saying, by pursuing Christ, I increase in righteousness which means I didn't sin as much as I used to, which means I didn't have as much shame and guilt as I used to, nor the consequences of my sin ruining my life. He's not saying he was perfect, but he's saying I wasn't living as hard a life because I was living in sin. Next, he says, he, by pursuing Christ, he received, at verse 10, fellowship with Christ, that I may know him in the powers of resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming more like him. He got to experience in his life the intimate presence of Christ, and this helped Paul tremendously when people let him down, when people betrayed him, when people deserted him or persecuted him. He still had Christ. He always had the Lord's presence because the Lord promised to never leave him. So this brings me to two application questions that I want to leave you with. Every now and then I like to have you do the work of application where you get to come up with, how do I apply this to my life? And so here's the first question. I think the text leads us to, and that is, do you know Christ, or do you just know about him? See, the way you answer that question is huge in light of eternity. It's very important. He wants to know you. And it's really important for you to figure this out, because knowing about Christ doesn't save you. Only knowing Christ personally does. Jesus talked about this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. He said when he returns to earth, there are many that will look like Christ's followers. There are many that will have even performed miracles in his name. 
But he will say to them, get away from me. I never knew you. If you have questions about what it means to know Christ personally, I'd love to talk to you after the service or anybody that has an orange lanyard would love to talk to you about that. But it is very important that the knowledge of Christ and the gospel and who Jesus is makes that journey from your head down to your heart where it changes your heart. Here's the next question. The second application question. If you know Christ, are you growing closer to him each day? Like Paul described. Are are you making time each day to open his word and spend time in prayer? Are, Are you practicing his presence throughout your day, talking to him, thinking about him? Because you, like Paul, have decided all the other stuff that I have in my life, I've counted as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Can can you say what Paul kind of says here? Can you say about your job? Yeah, that job's okay. But I count it as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Can you say that about your family? You know, I love my family, but, you know, doesn't compare. Having a great family doesn't compare to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So, is Jesus enough to save you for eternity? Paul's answer is a resounding yes. And is Jesus enough to live a fulfilling life? Paul's answer is yes. Take it from me. I accomplished all these things and found it was worth nothing. The only question I think that remains for you to answer, is Jesus enough for you? Is he enough for you? Jesus plus something equals nothing, but Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for Paul's passion for you. It bleeds off the page. Lord, please, would you by your spirit and by your grace infect us with that same passion. Would you, would you help us, Lord, by your spirit and by your grace to gain the perspective that Paul has where we would see the things of this world as temporary. It's not praiseworthy, but instead would lift up the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Father, I just I want to pray for those that might be listening or here today that think that they can somehow be good enough to earn their salvation, that they think maybe they can achieve the perfection that you required for eternal life. Lord, please, would you free them of that burden and help them see they can't be good enough? Would you help them to see, Lord, that Christ is the only one who is good enough. 
that he offers his perfect life in exchange for our imperfect one. Lord, for those that are here today that maybe know Christ, but they've allowed other things to crowd their heart where they have competing loves, would you make that clear to them? Would you help them, Lord, to sort of clean up their heart and sweep off the throne in their heart so that Christ can be preeminent, first place, and supreme in their life. Father, finally, would you help us as we walk with you, as we practice the spiritual disciplines, would you help us, Lord, to grow closer and closer to you and to become more like you? Would you heighten our sensitivity to your spirit so that we can hear your voice and sense your presence no matter what we go through during the week? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.